You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show and I'm your host West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon and oh man there's just so much to talk about you know the worlds have come to uh to Lane County and uh, you know it's just all sorts of things in the news and and you know executive orders and oh man just too much to talk about in in an hour but we'll do our best um and i have to start with the worlds because i remember you know when they the eugene was first bidding on this years ago you know back when vin lanana was was with track town and they were going after the world they were trying to get Lane County to come up with a whole bunch of money to support their, you know, the bid. And, and then, then, then they kept coming back asking us for money. And I'm like, one, we don't have excess money just sitting around. And two, aren't you guys selling TV rights and tickets and everything else? Now I know why they were asking for money. <laughs> Seems like they kind of overestimated the attendance a little bit. Um, and it's been, you know, from the 100 to 200,000 people, now they're saying 50,000. That's a pretty big difference. And I, and I have to say, when I started hearing what the ticket prices were going to be uh, several months back, I was really concerned about how many people would be willing to come and pay that kind of price day after day to attend a an athletic event. I mean, it, the prices are, are really expensive, and particularly to bring a family or something like that. At the same time, all the hotels jacked up their rates during these, these two weeks, and, and it's hard to get the B&Bs, all Airbnbs all jacked their rates up. So not surprising attendance isn't quite what they thought it was going to be. And now, and you know, they spent all this time you know, the news media and um, the folks that are organizing, talking about, you know, avoid these, you know, the worlds are coming. You're going to want to avoid these roads because they're going to be busy and lots of traffic. So, you know, people are, are staying away from those areas. Those businesses are suffering now. And there are also all these stories on all the local evening news and even in newspapers concerned about would the restaurants and the service industry be able to meet the demand, particularly because there's such a worker shortage in those industries. And um, now suddenly the restaurants are wondering where everybody is <laughs> to the point where 
they're starting to try and ask locals to go back to the restaurants they used to go to because they're not crowded. It's like you spent almost a solid month telling people that things are going to be so crazy, stay the hell away, basically, was what you were telling the locals. And when the attendance doesn't reach what you thought is, and the locals are all staying home because they're afraid of what uh, you know a mob scene is going to be, um, self-fulfilling <laughs> problem there a little bit, but I feel sorry for some of the restaurant owners that were expecting these massive influx of business. Hopefully they um, were able to, to modify some of their food ordering because, you know, food's a perishable good and it's a major part of their expense. Um, but we'll, we shall see. Uh, but, you know, it is still a pretty amazing event in a lot of ways. And it's great that the whole world here um, had its own controversies, you know, digital timers in, and whether or not you can detect one one thousandth of a second false start has become quite the controversy here. Um, and then, uh, you know, just a few other things going on. You know, I, I don't know who designed the mascot for the worlds, but I think it's a Bigfoot. I've told that it identifies as a Bigfoot and wishes to have its pronoun be legend. Um, <laughs> I, I swear, it doesn't look much like a Bigfoot to me. Um, and I still can't figure out what the colored stuff is on the top of its head. Um, but, you know, that aside, you know, mascots for some of the, you know, the Olympics and other things like this, some of them have been just so poorly thought out and, and executed. It's like, why? Why do you need a mascot for an event like that? <laughs> I don't get it. Um, okay. And then, you know, speaking of why, you know, there's this riverfront festival thing that the city of Eugene's kind of putting on, which is, you know, they keep promoting as being this place you can bring your family if you can't afford tickets, right? So a friend of mine brought his family there on Sunday morning. And guess what the entertainment was? It was a drag queen show. Not that I have anything against drag queens. If they kept their show family friendly. The problem was that even the names of the drag queens family friendly. And their show contained so much innuendo and foulness that I know several people that left rather quickly. And I wouldn't care if it was, you know, straight comedians and song and dance people, if their show was lewd and unfamily friendly at a public park put on by the local government, there's a problem there. Don't advertise a venue as family friendly and then put on a non-family friendly show. It's kind of like, you know, say, oh, we're going to have a family friendly movie night in the park and you show, you know, The Exorcist. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. Although The Exorcist probably in today's world wouldn't get an R rating, but back when it came out, it sure did. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that, Couple couple fails there on the world's part, um, but there's good news. There is a truly family-friendly event going on right now, the Lane County Fair, 
we always make sure the Lane County Fair is family friendly. And, uh, you know, with the focus of the world on Lane County and Eugene, we are stepping up our security a little bit. You know, they're talking about clear bags and there's a limit on size and all that stuff. Just be aware, not going to be able to bring a backpack into the, the Lane County Fair this year. Um, check online about the security rules. Otherwise, you might be walking back to your car. Um, but uh, Lane County Fair is going on now family-friendly entertainment, even in the evenings. But all day long, you know, they got all the, all the usual stuff there. Uh, you know, all the farm animals and the booths, vendor booths and the rides. It's all their concerts at night that are family-friendly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's just, yeah, you want to go to a family-friendly event, go a few blocks to the, to the west. And, you know, go west, young man, and you'll find a family-friendly event there at Lane County Fair. And we even try and keep ticket prices low enough to keep it affordable to families. So have fun at the fair. That all said, we got some serious stuff to talk about today. We've got to talk about property taxes. We've got to talk about public safety, talk about electric vehicles, and we've got to talk about financial and fiduciary responsibility of elected officials pretty heady stuff. And I want to start off with the with property taxes, but before I do, I don't want to forget to remind folks, we are a call-in show. If you want to give us a call and talk about the worlds and anything else, county fair, you name it, executive orders from the president coming out, the president falling off his bicycle, I don't care. Whatever it is you want to talk about, 646-721-9887. Just press one, and that lets us know you want to talk on the show, because we do have people that call in to listen on their cell phones, because they're not in front of a computer. Again, 646-721-9887, and you press one, put your little hand up, and let's rob in my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know that you actually want to talk, and she'll you know, maybe engage you in a brief conversation so she can put your name up on the board for me, and we'll get you on the show. But now we got to talk about property taxes a little bit. And you know, property taxes have, have always been a touchy subject. Um, you know, we went through some major battles in the 90s about property tax limitations because they were growing so fast with the value of the properties that people were losing their homes because they couldn't pay their property taxes, particularly senior citizens were being extremely impacted People that are on fixed incomes, maybe people that work for nonprofits and don't get paid as well. That that's a big bill for a lot of people. Um, and so we went through all these battles back then. People are pretty sensitive about adding to their property taxes. And you've got to demonstrate a pretty good reason for doing so, or generally people vote no for it. And that's, you know, one of the great things now is you want to add to property taxes, you have to ask the people to, to, to vote to, to tax themselves. And we have done that successfully here in Lane County. For the first time in a generation, basically, we passed the public safety levy about nine years ago, and we renewed it four years ago with an even bigger margin of victory because people understood it was worth paying a little bit more on their property taxes to to 
repair the public safety system at least to a a minimum level of service. I won't say it's adequate at all. It hasn't been, and in fact, there's a crisis coming in public safety, and we're going to talk about that a bit. But property taxes are interesting because they come in to our general fund generally uh, in general and um you know we get we can utilize property tax for just about anything we want to use it for but there is a proposal right now to raise property taxes to pay for capital projects and deferred maintenance in our park system which is a desperate need we you know since the end of the timber money and when the federal government walked away from their obligations for the 55% that they own of Lane County, and particularly the ONC lands, which they hold in trust for the county, uh, and they've walked away from their obligations on that, we had to cut our parks department to shreds because we were trying to preserve what we could of our public safety system. So as we are looking at having to renew our public safety levy next year and asking people to tax themselves again, the question I have is, is it wise for us to ask people to tax themselves for a non-critical function such as parks? Although I'm, I'm sure there are people that consider it critical, but when you talk about basic government, why we formed government in the first place, which is to protect our, you know, people from each other and to have a court of law to enforce contracts like, you know, landlord-tenant law, <laughs> um, that's really the, the very basic function of government is, is that, you know, that police court system, criminal justice, civil court system, very basic form of government. Everything else is built around that is an additional service. Those things aren't functioning. You lose, society just goes to heck in a handbasket. How many people now are afraid to hike on some of the trails because they don't want to leave their car at a trailhead? Now, is that a failure of the park system or is that a failure of the public safety system? Yeah, you get what I'm talking about. So the parks levy they're proposing would raise $6 million a year, be roughly $0.16 cents per $1,000 of assessed value on, on housing. But you got to kind of ask yourself, what could we do with $6 million a year in our public safety system? Well, when you think about a deputy sheriff, cost us you know somewhere around $250,000 a year, full pay and benefits, vehicle, uniform, and command structure, et cetera, above it, you get a lot of deputies for $6 million a year. You could get some DAs. You could get some parole officers. You could add to our electronic monitoring system so when we release people from jail prior to trial, we can make sure they come to trial. You know, there's all sorts of places in our in our public safety criminal justice system, which has become our de facto mental health system, by the way. You know, we have, you know, multiple mental health practitioners in our jail as full-time employees because we're dealing with that large, you know, uh, uh, yeah. Thanks, Robin, cracking me up during a serious conversation. <laughs> um, 
but we're dealing with such a uh, um, huge issue with mental health in this county. And we're dealing with a huge issue of property crime and quality of life crimes. And our violent crimes are increasing. So, you know, you kind of got to ask yourself, we're going to ask people to give more money. What do you ask them to give more money for first? And should that be prioritized? And that's without even thinking about the crisis that is looming for our public safety system that most people have absolutely no idea is coming. So I want to explain a couple things to people that might not understand how some pieces of our public safety system are funded and run in, in the state of Oregon. The first part is how adults are supervised prison and in probationary situations. You know, this is the folks that have been charged with a crime and might have been put on probation and, you know, will go to prison if they violate the probation. You know, that's the pre-prison, you know, supervision or post-prison supervision. And the idea is, you know, you is to keep the public safe. You know, you put people on those various things based on risk. And, um, and at the same time, try and help those people to figure out whatever in their life was that made them, you know, be a criminal in the first place and end up in, with the, involved in the criminal justice system and get their lives on the straight and narrow. So, you know, that supervision has changed greatly over time, and the cost of it has changed a lot. You know, it used to be that a parole and probation officer basically spent their time sort of, you know, checking, trying to catch parolees and, and probationers, violating their, their conditions and sending them off to jail. And it was referred to as tail in jail, you know. Find out if the guy that's never supposed to drink alcohol walks into a bar. Oh, back to prison for you, you know. <laughs> Make sure the guy's showing up at the job that he said he has. And, and if he isn't, back to jail for you. Now, the idea is to try and help people be successful. So parole officers have gone more from a much more law enforcement oriented role to almost a guidance counselor and, and, and social worker. They get trained in all sorts of, of things like cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy, um, which is you know a way of trying to teach people how to think problems through differently you know, like when you, when you can't make the rent, you don't rob the local 7-Eleven. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you approach your landlord and, and explain why you can't make the rent, see if you can work something out. Yeah. Other options are there. Uh, it, it's, it's surprising. You know, some people just haven't been trained how to think through a problem um, and coaching and, and all that. So that system, though, is funded by the state of Oregon, but executed by the counties. So we're completely dependent on the legislature's biannual budget on how much money we get to run that system here in Lane County. And they distribute this one, they, they, they allocate a certain amount of money to the system, and it gets distributed to each county based on your percentage of folks in supervision. And they 
do it on a capitated basis or something. Well, they're estimating that because of the drop in the number of people on supervision, partly due to uh, changes in some of the sentencing laws, making jail uh, prison sentences shorter. <laughs> Food alert. Uh, to uh, COVID delaying proceedings to where people aren't even being sentenced to prison. There's a humongous backlog of court proceedings right now in the state of Oregon. And some counties got hurt much worse than others. Sorry about that, folks. You might remember back when we were shutting down um, restaurants and public venues and all that stuff here in the state of Oregon, that they had these different um, risk levels and all that. Remember when I was complaining about how the county was artificial? <coughs> Excuse me. How Lane County was artificially being bumped into higher risk because of the amount of testing work the University of Oregon was doing on its students that was driving our case numbers up artificially. So we were staying in. in you know, high risk and our courts were closed much longer than they should have been. So compared to other counties, we were excessively impacted by court delays. So you can imagine what's happening now to us in our parole and probation funding. Now, mind you, when you think about parole and probation, it doesn't just fund parole officers. It also funds the jail because you know, when minor violations parole, they don't send the people all the way back to prison. They do what they call sanctioning at different levels. They might end up on a sheriff's work crew for a weekend. They might end up having to, you know, do some extra homework for their parole officer. It's a really minor violation. Or they might spend a few nights in the Lane County Jail. Well, that system has to pay for that those jail beds to be available for those folks that are on supervision, including the ones that recidivate and, and commit another crime. You know, so whenever those folks are jailed, that's supposed to be covered by this system and part of what they call the community correction system in Oregon. We are staring at a possible 20% cut in those funds, real dollar cut, not in a percentage inflated number and then cut back, a real dollar drop in the funding of that system here in Lane County in the next biennium. That's going to impact not just our parole division, parole and probation division, it's going to affect the Lane County Sheriff's Department and the jail and a whole bunch of nonprofits that also help with that treatment portion. Nonprofits like sponsors that, that supplies a lot of our post-prison transitional housing for those folks and a lot of the therapy work and, and coaching and mentoring, extremely successful programs, 20% cut, emergence, substance and, and alcohol abuse treatment, you know, uh, sex offender treatment, you know, all those things are part of that system for these folks post-prison to try and keep our citizens safe and also help these people be successful in society. 
20% cut we're looking at impacts the sheriff's department and several others. It even touches our DA's department because there's other funding connected to that called justice reinvestment funding that's on the same formula for funding that also helps us with some of our treatment court costs, which pays for prosecution folks, which leads me to the next piece of our public safety crisis brewing. We are having a hiring crisis in all aspects of public safety, but probably one of the greatest places where we're having difficulty in public criminal justice system hiring is in hiring attorneys for the public defenders and for the prosecutors. And just yesterday, we got notification from our district attorney that she has lost multiple staff, senior staff to the Oregon Department of Justice because they pay more. It's a PERS system, so they don't lose their PERS transferring over there. And these senior prosecutors are the ones that can handle the complex cases, not the junior people straight out of college. And she's lost three of those positions recently and has had a position open to hire for eight months with zero applicants. We used, you know, patched together all sorts of pieces of the system from the, from the public safety levy monies to this community corrections monies to this justice reinvestment monies to general fund monies from the county to kind of get our district attorney's office back whole enough where we thought we could, we could prosecute all viable felony charges in this county. This, this exodus of people from that's the prosecution side with the inability to hire replacements is leading our district attorney to notify us that she may no longer be able to charge all felonies in Lane County, which means there are going to be people arrested with proper evidence to convict that are going to be released due to lack of prosecution. Let me say that again. There are going to be people that are caught with sufficient evidence of felonies, and you think about felony theft or something like that, that will not be cross prosecuted in Lane County because we just don't have the staff to prosecute them. Which means we have to go in and try and fix the salary system to be competitive somehow or another. We just finished giving a pretty generous contract to our, de de our deputy DAs. Not you know too long ago, settled a contract with them, gave them all raises and increases and market adjustments and, and cost of living wasn't enough to stay competitive with the state Department of Justice, apparently, and maybe also how attractive is it to stay a prosecutor now where they're starting to demonize prosecuting people. Think about, you know, the, the election of the Multnomah County DA that's anti-prosecution um, and is refusing to prosecute a lot of cases, not because he doesn't have staff, but because that's, you know, they're 
trying to blame district attorneys for all sorts of ills of society when all the district attorneys do is treat every case the same. If there's a violation of the law, they will go through and prosecute if there's sufficient evidence to convict. They don't get to choose who gets arrested. They don't get to choose who commits the crimes. They don't get to choose whether there's sufficient evidence or not. But if there is, a good district attorney's office will prosecute anything that that they have sufficient evidence to, to get a conviction or they feel has sufficient evidence. That's their job. But we've been demonizing their job just like we demonize the police. Hmm, funny, people don't really want to get into that service anymore. On the flip side, the public defenders are having the same issue because the state funds their system and is so woefully funded it over the years that they can't pay competitive salaries. At least they're not being demonized by, you know, the media, whatever else. They're the, they're the good guys, supposedly, and they're still having trouble filling their staff. Which means sometimes people get to walk because they don't get an attorney signed to the, a public defender assigned to them, or the public defender just you know keeps pushing cases out. It's it, it, and it, then it becomes self-perpetuating because their case load gets bigger and bigger because they don't have enough people to cover everything. They get overloaded. They postpone because they can't prepare, and it, it's self-perpetuating a lot of things. It's a crisis building in so many ways, not to mention just what's happening with salaries. Like I said, everything about this hiring crisis leads to increased salaries and increased costs. And just think about how much fuel a deputy sheriff uses patrolling a 4,000-square-mile county. You think your fuel budget's jumping up? So all this is coming together in a storm. And in that storm is the fact that we have this public safety serial levy that renews next May. And that serial levy provides the capability for us to hold felons in the jail and the enough jail beds to do so. And it gives us the capability to maintain 24-hour intake for our youth facilities and to maintain um, enough detention and treatment beds in our youth services for the population of Lane County. You know, we are grossly underserved in our criminal justice system compared to other counties of our size and population. You know, we have 0.19 sheriff deputies per thousand people when the average is of Marion County and Clackamas County is 0.36, and the average across the country is is even far beyond that. Yeah, we're nowhere close to being adequately patrolled. We're nowhere close to having an adequate prosecution staff. I mean, we've lost DA staff from what was already a skeleton staff and overloaded, overworkload, which you can understand they move over to Oregon DOJ, they probably have a lower caseload and a higher pay. And they're probably not as demonized. All that in mind about this, you know, 
crisis that is slowly brewing in public safety that will probably not manifest itself till sometime next year publicly, where you'll actually be able to see, feel, hear, and touch what's going on. With that in mind, do you go out and ask taxpayers for $6 million a year for parks maintenance? Do you take some of that goodwill of the voters and use it up for parts, knowing you've got to renew such a critical levy the following spring after six more months of this economy? And anyone that thinks this economy is going to change anytime soon should watch what the president and the Democrats are proposing right now. They don't seem to understand that the amount of money they circulated into the system with ARPA and all the other COVID release, and going even back to President Trump, who did the same thing, but we've increased the money supply in the U.S. so much, so fast, that we are going to be in an inflationary cycle for at least another year. What's our We're already starting to see impacts and slowdowns. You know why your gas prices have slightly slid back at the pump? We've dropped below 2,020 levels of fuel usage in this country in the last month. We are going below COVID levels of travel because people can't afford it. So, where will we be economically next May when we ask the voters to renew that sheriff's levy? And they have to think about, you know, I could save 55 cents per thousand on my, my tax bill if I vote no. Or, you know, oh, my God, I'm just I'm, I'm at my wit's end. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to keep my house. I mean, maybe by then the fact that the, the, the brewing public safety crisis might actually be visible to the, to the people at the same time might help get a yes vote. But, oh, my gosh. I, I just, I have trouble moving ahead with the parks levy ahead of the public safety levy, having my knowledge of what's going on in the background with the budgets and manpower issues in our criminal justice system right now. I have to, you know, um, DA Patty Perlow for the, the work she's done over the years. I can't imagine how thankless her job feels right now. Um, you know, there's going to have to be some kind of get together and figuring out what we can do to help her hire people. Yeah, you know, we just can't be catched and released. Although we're having to do some catch and release because they changed the bail laws in, in the state of Oregon. So we are releasing a lot more people pre-trial, which is another place where we are running way over our budget in electronic monitoring because we're releasing so many people pre-trial due to that new Senate bill that requires us to. I mean, it's a good thing for the people to get released pre-trial because they might be able to hang on to their jobs and all that stuff. But that electronic monitoring bracelets cost money. 
somebody's got to sit there and watch the screens and see if people go outside their boxes, you know? Yeah, it's just, yeah, they're no good unless somebody does. And those bracelets cost money and the systems to monitor them cost money. You know, it's, it's just, you know, one thing after another, you know, we get little mandates placed on us by the state here and there without the funding that follows. And it, it's like being pecked to death by, you know, ducks or something like that. <laughs> A whole huge flock of ducks. You know, one little peck ain't gonna, isn't going to bother you, but, you know, they keep, they keep at it. Eventually, it starts causing problems. And there's these slow-burning issues of rising costs, of inability to fill jobs, and then a system of funding that's completely broken when it comes to our community corrections and our post-prison and and um, probationary supervision system in the in this state that funds a whole bunch of different pieces of the system, including a lot of local nonprofits. And we're looking, staring at a 20% wall in that. So, I, 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 it's not good news. It's not anything fun to look at. But I think it's something that we have to make the public aware of as we're getting ready to make this decision. Because there will be a public hearing in August where the board will take public comment on whether or not to put that parks levy on the ballot. And it is, I feel it's my responsibility to make sure the voters understand some of the background that, you know, now that we don't have a local newspaper worth a damn, now that half of our television stations are owned by the same companies, so they repeat the same news, and we're just not seeing a lot of coverage of local news in depth enough to, for people to be hearing this. It's one of the reasons why I do the Bose Nose Show is I want people to know there is a public safety crisis brewing in Lane County and all across the state in some ways. But I guarantee you Lane County is staring at something. And even if it weren't for some of these issues, we run out of that ARPA money in a couple of years. We're staring at some other budget issues that are that are already built in. We have we we do not have a structurally balanced budget. We are spending reserves this year, and we're spending one-time monies that won't be repeated. Speaking of money, I, I'm going to jump to homes for good next. But I want to remind folks, we are a call-in show, 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to talk. Again, 646-721-9887, and don't forget to press 1. And that's a toggle, so if you press 1 twice, your hand, you know, your little hand on our, our caller board will go down. Um, so... Uh, just, uh, you know, anything you want to talk about, give us a call. Public safety, Lane County Fair, the mascot for the World Athletic Championships. We can talk about all that or what anything else comes to mind. But I want to talk for a minute about Homes for Good, which um, is our HUD housing agency 
here in Lane County that was formed in 1949 under the sponsorship of the Board of Commissioners under the way the, the laws were set up for housing authorities. We are basically the sponsoring agency and and how that housing authority exists is under the jurisdiction of Lane County Board of Commissioners. So for years and years and years and ever and ever, Homes for Good Board has had all five commissioners on it because we are fiduciarily responsible for that agency as the sponsoring, you know, local government to have a HUD housing authority. You know, over the years, the rules have changed and they've added two other people on the board who have to be living in housing provided by the agency. And they're referred to as resident commissioners. And they're appointed by the board of commissioners, but there's an application process process for residents to apply. And then the board of commissioners chooses two out of those applicants. Well, they rotate uh, um, terms, so we we pick one uh, every every once in a while to serve on on the the board of, of homes for good, previously known as as ten other different names over you know the, the length of history back to 1949. With all the housing efforts and everything else and COVID monies and rent relief and everything else, their budget for their fiscal year 22 is $58 million. And that's tax money from the federal government basically being allocated out to this agency. $58 million of public resources. And there was a move made, and, and I've been against it from the beginning, to remove the commissioner's influence on the board of Homes for Good, other than to be the, per, the, the board as a whole appoints who's on it. But they basically wanted to make it so the commissioners weren't the dominant piece. And they wanted to try and expand the number of people on the board and citizen members outside of resident commissioners because the thought was is the commissioners are too busy to focus on this two hours a month plus you know reading background material and all that not a big deal not one of my heavy pieces of my workload and mind you boards are supposed to be governance bodies they're not supposed to be doing the work of the agency and they're not supposed to be you know running the agency directly thought was if we we pared down the number of commissioners to where they weren't the dominant force and we brought in a bunch of citizens with knowledge of things that could help homes for good and they talked to us as they were making this pitch to change this you know we could get people from the banking industry and from the real estate industry and the construction industry in here and have and and they could lend their expertise to our staff and, and help us do a better job providing housing and they convinced the majority of our board to go along with that i feel like because there's so much public resource involved in this that the board needs to be directly responsible we have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that tax money is spent correctly 
Now the only thing we're going to do is appoint a board that we don't have that will approve the budget and the audits without our input. The only thing, only input we're going to have on on the fiduciary running of Homes for Good post this change is to appoint the board members. Once they're appointed, we won't have any control over the finances of Homes for Good. We don't approve their budget. Their board approves their budget. And, and the board yesterday voted to appoint a bunch of citizen members. And lo and behold, after all this talk about we're going to bring in expertise and, and bankers and all that stuff, only two out of the five citizen members had any expertise at all. And I sort of questioned one of them's, you know, fit for homes for good. The other three were basically activists, political activists being appointed to a board. So what was the real motivation behind this? To try and switch homes for good to some social justice platform or to provide housing and be financially responsible with taxpayer dollars. On the wrong side of another 4-1 vote there. And, and, and the funny part of this is the board adopted bylaws to change the Board of Homes for Good about a month or so ago. And they went through the process of appointing the citizen members, but they kind of forgot about the fact that there's two board members that have to serve on that. You know, so they, they'll only be two of nine now instead of five of seven. And those two members would get appointed by the board as a whole. Well, they just kind of, you know, completely forgot about that. And the board owns for good is having a board meeting next week. And there will be no elected officials with a vote in that meeting. Because the board hasn't appointed the two members yet. And on top of that, the progressives on our board want to make those appointments, 18-month appointments, after they're going to probably lose control of the board in January to make sure that they, they keep their seats passed when they won't have control. Who appoints what? Hmm. Appointing liberal activists to the board, making sure that they have a seat passed when there's going to probably be a change in the majority of the board. Eh, that's... Sounds like some monkey business to me. Huh. Your tax dollars at work. But that wasn't the only thing I was on a Thor one vote. Um, the board had an emergency item come up before us. And, and, and every time I see an emergency item, I think failure of staff. And particularly, we've had a staffer working on our, our uh, climate stuff that's just maybe doesn't have a calendar or something. It seems like a lot of stuff comes up as emergency. And it was a, a support letter of an electrical vehicle program that a uh, grant that uh, LCOG's applying for or something like that. And it's all based on this focus that we have to convert everybody's cars to electricity or get people to buy electric cars. And that's going to be the climate solution. And it is so not based in reality and science. 
I mean, I love it when everyone talks about follow science, follow science, and when you throw some science at them, they're like, no, 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 that's not going to be the problem. It's not an issue. It's like, okay, I've got reports that show our grid is destabilizing by the year, and the percentage of blackouts are going up significantly as, as, as we, quote, decarbonize our, our grid. So the stability of our electric grid is going down, and you're going to throw a bunch of charging of vehicles on that grid that are most likely going to end up being charged during peak hour. People are going to come home from work and plug their car into the wall in their garage because they're going to want to slow charge it versus fast charge. Better for battery life and a whole bunch of things. Mind you, no one ever the actual carbon footprint of manufacturing electric vehicles versus internal combustion engine vehicles. There is a massive carbon footprint towards battery production that doesn't go into a internal combustion standard vehicle. And they don't drive peak hour demand in our electric grid which peak hour is usually met with some hydrocarbon generation because it has to be spinnable on demand, quick on and off power. Green power does not make that. So what you're doing is you're moving that carbon footprint from the tailpipe in your local neighborhood so you feel good about it to some mining operation in China or Africa for the materials to build the batteries and all the transportation of those materials and manufacture of those batteries, and also to the power plants that have to meet the peak hour demand to charge those vehicles, let alone the fact that they'll probably be shutting the grid down at times because they can't make the amount of electricity into the system as it's being drawn out. You see rolling blackouts and stuff like that. So if you get to charge your vehicle and how much it's being subsidized by the government to make it at least a reasonable cost for high-income people, because you're not seeing low- and middle-income people purchasing EVs, but we are seeing battery manufacturing plants getting 20 to 25% subsidies in tax cuts to locate in communities in the U.S. as they're, they're being, you know, incentivized to locate there. So even that batteries that go into your vehicle are 25%, you know, already subsidized just to try and keep the cost down. And there's all sorts of, you know, different states and different programs to reduce the cost of those vehicles. The charging station constructions being supported by federal dollars we're printing and creating inflation with. But is it really the answer to greenhouse gases? Don't get me started on, on whether even that's the, what's driving climate change, whether it's not you know, part of the natural cycle coming out of an ice age and how much we can show that man's influence versus, you know, natural. I, I do believe there is some man-made influence. I can't guarantee it's all due to carbon dioxide. Old, long technical argument about that. 
But the idea that EDs are somehow or another going to rescue the planet is ridiculous. And somebody's making a lot of money off of this. Now, didn't Hunter Biden have a lot of connections with the Chinese government? And, and hmm, isn't China where most of our green energy supplies and battery supplies are coming out of? Um, most of the solar panels and, hmm, hmm, yeah, I wonder what might be driving all this stuff. Oh, so, yeah, I was on the other end of a 4-1 vote supporting a grant to, you know, provide even more subsidies for electric vehicles. You know, I don't remember anybody subsidizing putting in gas stations <laughs> other than the oil companies that wanted to put them in. Uh, yeah, and, you know, President Biden returned from his trip begging for oil from the Saudis after, you know, he kind of wanted to make them a pariah state. Fascinating. You know, today he's announcing he's going to make all these executive orders to try and implement his climate programs, including talking about how he was going to spend several billion dollars. And I'm like, how does the president allocate money? It's not in his constitutional powers. You know, I, I've, I've got one of these things. I've flipped through it under executive powers and powers of the Congress. And, uh, yeah. It, it's just, it's just not there. He can't, he can't allocate funds. That's solely lies in the legislature's power. You know, so how is he going to do two and a half billion or whatever it was he claimed he was going to spend on the climate? Yeah, I don't know. But uh, yeah, so yeah, they're 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 talking about doing all sorts of things. Um, Robbins messaged me and said that, you know, that they're also going to try and ban internal combustion engines after 2035. It's like, okay, you know, I hope they understand that not everyone is got short distances to drive and not everyone, you know, is driving just two people. <laughs> But, you know, that leads me to this whole thing where you have, have you heard of the, this latest trend of the Antifa crowd of slashing the tires on SUVs? Yeah, be careful if you park in the wrong neighborhood with your with your um, suburban or your Tahoe or whatever um, expedition or or whatever SUV. Lincoln Navigator, who knows, your Cadillac. Um, if you got a big SUV, beware of parking in Portland or, or San Francisco because your tires may get slashed. And there's no carbon footprint to replacing those tires either. <laughs> None at all. And Robin's dying to jump in on this one. Well, isn't that mostly peaceful slashing? Yeah, mostly peaceful. Mostly peaceful. Yeah, and, and it's not defined as riot at all, which, you know, speaking of, 
it amazes me the Patriot Prayer guy up there, you know, that got the judge basically looked at the prosecution from Multnomah County and said, you don't have a case. Speech is not riot. <laughs> if speech were riot and against the law, it would violate the First Amendment. We encourage speech and free speech. And he basically threw that whole Patriot Prayer thing out. And the guy has got a fantastic case for violation of his civil rights now against Multnomah County. They are going to be paying him a lot of money in the future. You know? Because they had arrested multiple people for, you know, under similar, quote, riot charges. And the only one they chose to prosecute was the right wing guy. (laughs) Political prosecution is not legal, particularly when you don't have any evidence behind it and, and go after it for three straight years trying to prosecute somebody. Well, the judge just basically read, read that DA, the Riot Act. And, and based on the, you know, the judge's comments, you know, this, this, I, I can't remember the guy's name that was, was being charged, but he's, he's, uh, he's going to make some money from Multnomah County. I, I, I imagine they'll probably settle because they won't want to have the publicity of the, of a trial. Because, you know, when you sue for civil rights violations in federal court, you're eligible for all of your attorney's fees. So he can go and get the best legal team in the country that charges thousands of dollars an hour, knowing, and they'll probably do it pro, you know, based on you know, getting a piece of the settlement versus charging him up front because he's got such a great case. <laughs> Multnomah County is going to be paying Lots of legal fees and then lots of settlement if they don't settle up front with him, which I bet they do quickly and quietly. But if you live in Multnomah County, you're paying for that guy's next car, next SUV. His next escalates on you. <laughs> Antifa. Go, Robin. Well, I was just going to say that uh, maybe the solution to all the electric vehicles and slashing tires might just be... I think Fred's got the right idea. Yep, yep. Yeah, but I do. I can't. Yeah, it'll. I always loved the sound when he was starting his car up. You know, getting his car going, of his feet flapping against the ground. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. All right, and with that, I think we're going to wrap up another edition of the Bose Nose Show. We'll be back next week. Coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.